The Lonely Warrior by Claude C. Washburn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Prologue 3. Stacy arrived in New York one afternoon about a week later. His boat was to sail the next morning. He went to the small hotel on Tenth Street, where he always stayed. "'How do you do, Mr. Carroll? Glad to see you, sir,' said the clerk. Stacy wasted no time, but dropped his suitcase in his room, and set off immediately uptown on the top of a motor-bus. It was clear dry weather, not too cold, and the city's buildings stood out sharply against a brilliant sky. Stacy had never liked this glittering hardness in the atmosphere of New York. The Metropolitan Tower wouldn't be so bad and the Woolworth would be bully, he had often thought, if only they would soar up dimly into a softening haze, as they would in Paris. The whole show was good, but not good enough to stand this crude vivid light. Nothing could stand it, neither façades nor human faces. It was like an immense close-up at the movies and to-day, since he continued to feel about him and within himself so much confusion, this effect of physical clarity really made him uneasy. But the discomfort soon faded, and he thought only that he was to have this whole afternoon and evening with Philip Blair. He took the stuffy elevator in the Harlem apartment house, stepped out, and hurried down the dark hall to Philip's door with no other feeling than gladness. Philip himself opened the door, and his face showed as warm a pleasure as his guest's. He was thin and slight almost to emaciation, with keen prominent blue eyes, a sharp-cut nose whose nostrils seemed to sniff like a dog's, and a short fair moustache. He looked like a medieval ascetic, superficially modernized. Just at present he was in shirt-sleeves and held a pair of compasses in one hand. With the other, he shook Stacy's eagerly. "'By Jove, I'm glad to see you,' he cried. "'But why do you give me only a day? Why didn't you come and stay a week? Come on in!' And he led Stacy down a narrow hall and threw the dining-room into his study. "'Couldn't do it,' Stacy replied on the way. "'Whole business so sudden.' "'Yes, I suppose so,' the other assented quietly. "'What you working on?' asked Stacy, leaning over the drawing-board in the study, and fumbling abstractly at the same time, with a pile of sketches that lay, curled up anyhow, on a table close by. "'Public library for a village,' said Blair, pulling a sketch of the front elevation from the rattling heap of papers, spreading it out on the board, and holding it down flat. Together they leaned over it. Stacy nodded. "'Fine,' he said. "'Awfully good. Let's see. It's not for a New England village. Where is it for? Pennsylvania?' "'Pretty near. Western New York, close to the Pennsylvania line.' Stacy continued to examine the drawing, then began to smile, poked his finger at it with a wide curving gesture, and finally broke into a frank laugh. "'Always the same old Phil,' he said gaily, dropping into an easy chair quite incorrigible. Don't you ever remember how many shameful hors concours you were always getting at the Beaux-Arts, and how disapprovingly old Fromels used to shake his head over your projets, and what they all used to think of you? Too bad, 
just a little vulgar just a little vulgar blair laughed with him but after a moment stacy became suddenly silent and gazed with a puzzled frown at his friend wondering how it was that anyone so physically frail as blair could possess such creative masculine vigor of mind how are you getting on phil he asked abruptly blair shrugged his shoulders oh all right enough he answered lightly i scrape along without too much difficulty it would be easier in one way if i were to go in with some firm but never do for you never in the world stacy interrupted shaking his head you'd feel crushed yes i'd rather go it on my own i'm all right absolutely the only thing that bothers me is not getting enough jobs i don't mean because i need them financially but because you know how it is to learn a man has to see his work in actual stone and brick you're too damn good said stacy hotly you've got the real stuff in you here am i prospering like a like a pork packer while you struggle along unappreciated yet you're a thousand times better than i you're too generous and loyal stacy blair returned with a shake of his fair head i couldn't ever reach your delicacy in detail detail yes stacy muttered i he too shook his head while his friend gazed at him with a calm clear smile lack of vulgarity is the curse of more places than the beaux-arts stacy concluded suddenly there's a brand new thought for you brand new so far as i'm concerned make what you can of it phil philip blair laughed sounds interesting he said i'll have to think it over anyhow you needn't worry about me i managed to scrape enough together to live and keep catherine and the boys going where are the kiddies out for a walk with her they'll be in soon after this a silence that perhaps both young men had felt lying in wait descended upon them blair was the first to meet frankly what it stood for so you're going over into it stacy he said stacy nodded i've got to well said blair slowly after another pause i suppose in view of the tremendous issue i ought to feel principally gladness that one bit more of strength and courage is thrown into the right side of the balance but do you know i don't i can't perhaps it's because i'm not big enough to get away from personal feelings and yet i don't think it's merely that the truth is stacy that you and i are individualists we were born like that and we've been brought up that way the profession we've chosen is individualistic not perfectly so because we have to meet the ideas of our clients but a good deal so all the same for the very fact that people in general are so standardized unindividual wanting in ideas of their own makes them leave pretty much in our hands the houses they hire us to build for them stacy was smiling he recognized with affectionate amusement a characteristic of his friend's mind that inability to leave any side issue of a theme unexplored before pursuing the main theme onward how different from stacy's father and also how honest and thorough most people thought that philip had a wandering mind he knew better for philip always did come back to the theme he was back in it now we're against the current he was saying sadly 
the whole trend of the world is overwhelmingly toward collectivism doing and feeling in common standardization and yet and yet the unit is the individual it can't ever be the group the individual's a fact there you have him complete a world his only one to himself the group's a fiction a composite photograph lifeless oh i know the whole trend of things is wrong and that we're right so long as we harness our individualism and don't let it grow into a silly cult right wrong he went on musingly staring off through the window what do i mean by right and wrong well i mean i suppose creatively valuable creatively harmful and the war is going to rush and swell the advance of collectivism no more art no more thought no more real life not till long after the war is over you'll see well it was what stacy himself had told his father but he hadn't perceived all that it meant that was what you got for being impressionistic instead of thorough he told himself humbly blair turned his eyes back slowly to his friend and that he concluded his thin face drawn with an expression of pain is why though i know you've got to do it and though i'd do it too if i had the bodily health that is why i feel above all grief that you must throw yourself into that inferno of awful physical and worse mental suffering forgive me he cried remorsefully but the shadow that had come over stacy's face was not there because of the prophecy of pain stacy was thinking of the contrast between philip's words and marion's that's all right phil he said quietly it wasn't what you said that bothered me it was something else of course i know what i'm going into so far as anyone can know through his imagination about something totally outside his experience it's a great deal better to think of it beforehand than be ready they dropped all talk of the war after this and before long philip's sons dashed in jack the younger boy who was two and a half ran at once shyly to his father but the older who was five gave his hand to stacy with a pretty confiding cordiality how do you do uncle stacy he said with childish formality recently enough learned to demand care and effort hello carter returned stacy who liked the boy and liked being called uncle the child leaned against his knee uncle stacy he exclaimed his soft eager face glowing will you do fly away jack fly away jill for me i think i can find them this time i think i know where they went philip blair laughed having achieved formality he said he puts it behind him at once something accomplished something done has earned a night's repose quite right too stacy replied i promise i will after just a little while carter where's your mother here said catherine coming through the doorway it was windy out i had to fix my hair she shook hands with stacy a little shyly and formally almost like her son let's go into the sitting-room she said in the abrupt way she had of speaking there's a pleasant fire in there but when they had sat down in front of it they all became silent all that is save jack who on the floor with his toys 
babbled to himself ceaselessly of a thousand important things. Even Carter was silent. He sat on a footstool and gazed at Stacy from a little distance with patient expectancy. Stacy, however, had forgotten him. A dozen thoughts were moving through the young man's mind, yet not turbulently, but smoothly, without interference, like ships on a wide river. Perhaps this was because he was not thinking of himself at all, but of Phil and Catherine. He looked at Catherine, sitting there across the hearth, she, too, apparently far away in thought, and tried to study her objectively. She was tall and dark and handsome, with high cheekbones, a high forehead, and black eyes set deep beneath long sweeping lashes. She had a magnificent figure, lithe, supple, and without opulence, slender even, but making evident the large bony structure. So, too, with her head. It was like a firm Mantegna drawing, revealing clearly what lay beneath the smooth close-textured skin. Therefore in repose her face appeared even stern. There was something sculpturesque about Catherine. But these things were externals. What was she really like? Stacy could not discover. In all the years that he had known her, first as Philip's fiancée and then as Philip's wife, he had never got beneath her intense, shy reserve. Yet, which seemed odd, there was no sense of constraint between them as long as Phil was there, too. Stacy could talk impersonally with her, or, better still, sit for a long time silent with her, as now, perfectly at ease and sure that she, too, felt at ease. That was all, though. He could not understand the marriage. Still, he recognized that it was a happy marriage, and he admitted loyally that a man very rarely did understand his most intimate friend's choice of a wife. Sometimes, he remembered, he had tried to sum up Catherine and her relation to Phil impressionistically. Once he had told himself that she was like a castle, and Philip like a wind blowing around it, rattling the shutters, but leaving the castle permanent and unchanged but he felt a touch of impatience now, in the recollection of that judgment. He had always been full of such fancies. Perhaps he had even cultivated them, and felt a small pride in them. Somehow, in these last weeks, he had come to feel almost antipathy for these baubles. What did they really explain? What good did it do to catch a mood, even truly? What was a mood but an evanescent, unrelated thing? But distaste for oneself does not suffice to alter one's nature. Stacy did not perceive that his present musings had the same quality they disapproved of. It was Carter who broke the silence with a plaintive unconscious sigh. Philip laughed, but his visitor started. "'Oh, Carter, old chap,' he said remorsefully, "'I forgot all about Jack and Jill. I'm ready now. Come on over.' The child ran to him delightedly, all the ages and ages of tedious waiting forgotten at once, and Stacy took a postage stamp from his pocket, tore it carefully in half, and gummed the pieces to the nails of his two forefingers. Experience had taught him that stamps were safer than scraps of ordinary paper, which had an embarrassing way of coming off. Two little blackbirds sitting on a hill, one named Jack and one named Jill. Fly away, Jack, fly away, Jill. Come back, Jack, 
Come back, Jill. Stacy performed the magic trick over and over again, while Carter searched unavailingly for the bird's hiding place, sure that he would find it the next time, and Jack, not understanding, but delighted none the less, trotted around tirelessly after his brother, and the November twilight crept in through the windows and darkened the room. Then it was time for the children to go to bed, and Catherine led them away, leaving the two men together. After a while she came back, and they all three went in to dinner. Stacy glanced at the table appreciatively. "'Phil has one human foible anyway,' he said to Catherine. "'He never cared what he ate, but he's always been fastidious about how he eats it.' Catherine gave him a rare smile that softened her face to beauty. "'Do you mean,' she asked, "'that all the setting is good, but the dinner itself not?' He laughed, pleased and surprised at the disappearance of her shyness. "'You know I don't. How can I tell what the dinner's like, when everything's concealed beneath those heavy silver covers. He stayed until very late in the evening. It had always been Catherine's way to disappear rather early and leave her husband and Stacy to themselves, no doubt because she knew that she had no real part in their intimacy. But tonight, though she went out of the room from time to time, she invariably returned. Indeed, she seemed different to Stacy. It was, he thought, as though one thickness of the veil between them had been stripped away. Oh, Stacy, dislike of impressionism? Once he caught her gazing at him with a melancholy intentness, but, seeing that he was looking, she turned her eyes away at once and stared into the fire. The war was not mentioned, but, because there was no feverishness in the talk or sense of constraint upon the three, Stacy felt that this revealed no attempt to evade the war and his share in it. The war was there, and he was going to it. That was a simple fact, conceded by all three. There was nothing to do about it or say about it. War was not a part of their past or woven anyhow into the fabric of their minds. Not a bit of use for conversation. "'I'll be down at the boat tomorrow morning,' Phil said, when at last Stacy rose to go. "'Thanks, Phil,' Stacy replied gratefully. "'Good night, Catherine, and thank you both ever so much. I feel bathed in quiet happiness.' Catherine gave him her hand, with a murmured good night, then dropped it abruptly. "'Shy once again,' thought Stacy, with kindly amusement. When the next day all goodbyes had been said, and the great ship was sweeping out to sea, and Stacy was walking to and fro alone on the deck, with all his thirty years of life vanishing behind him, rounded out, ended, a completed story, while between it and his present self a mist began to rise, like the mist that was rising between ship and shore, he gathered up the impressions the final week had left him, gently, as one ties together old letters before putting them away and, stripping them down to essentials, he could find but this, that there was a sweet serenity in the memory of the afternoon and evening with the Blairs, an odd sense of comfort in the picture of Mrs. Latimer stepping towards him beneath the arc-light in front of her house, and, yes, comfort again in the thought of Julie, his sister, 
Julie, with whom he had never had anything in common save their relationship, but the vision of whose good-humoured face, stained with tears, and of whose ridiculous efforts to make her eight-months-old baby say good-bye to Uncle Stacy, recurred to him now gratefully. In the thought of Marion there was only uneasy pain. Perhaps, he reflected sadly, this was just because she had hurt his vanity, or, perhaps, it was because, at such a moment of leave-taking, what one demanded was merely simple affection, or perhaps it was because intense love must be uneasy and painful. Well, he put the letters away, and closed the drawer upon them. End of Prologue